Well, good morning. It is good to see the pews so full, and I wish I could see those who are below us and those who are joining us via Zoom. It, is, it has been six months, six months since we have felt safe enough to do this. And it's, it's simply a blessing to finally be able to gather together, isn't it? It's, it's, it's just good. It's just good. And I hope this text is fitting for us this morning. That through the, all, through the six months, through all that we've had to endure, that the Lord Jesus has been faithful to keep his church. He's been faithful to keep you individually with all that you've gone through. And he's been faithful to keep his church corporately. He is our keeper. He is our watcher. He is the one who will see us to the end. So with that being said, let me pray, and then we'll go into our text. Oh, Father, most holy, loving, and gracious Father, we call upon you now to speak to us from your word, to encourage us, to show us your glory, oh, Father, to show us your Son, to show us all that you have for us, all that you have done for us, all that you will do for us. Open our eyes, O oh Lord, that we may behold and see and cherish and feast upon glorious and wonderful truths from your word. So that as we leave here, we don't walk out as those who have lost a war, but we walk out as those who are victorious. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So a, a quick story. A few years ago, actually, when I was discovering or trying to figure out, is the Lord calling me to ministry? That was a, that's a whole other story for another day, but it was tough. And I had a pastor back in Savannah, Georgia, who would come to me quite often and who would ask me, Jerry, do you want to preach this Sunday evening? And fear and anxiety would fill my heart. I was at war with myself, and I would say, no, I, I, I can't. I would make some excuse. I, I, I just can't. He'd say, okay. And over and over and over, he'd ask that same question. Until one day, I'm sitting at a coffee shop with him, and me knowing that this question is possibly going to come up, I was trying to avoid it. You know, we're, we're good at avoiding things we don't really want to do, and that's what I was trying to do. I was avoiding, trying to find some way to avoid him asking that question to steer the conversation. Well, he's much wiser than me, and so is God, and he stopped me in the middle of my conversation. He asked, Jerry, do you want to preach one Sunday evening? And again, that fear and anxiety rose up in my heart, and I said this. I said, I can't, but this time I was more honest. I said, because I'm afraid to preach. And he looked at me, and my pastor is an Irishman, so I, I can't replicate his accent. I'm not going to try. But he looked at me, and over the rim of his glasses, he, he said, Jerry, why are you afraid to preach? And I said, thinking I'm wise, because people come to church to eat a feast. I don't want to give them scraps. And again, he looked at me, and he paused, and he said, Jerry, you don't prepare the meal. God does. 
God does. Do you see what my pastor was doing for me there? He, without him realizing it, without him pulling out his theological dictionary and saying, Jerry, let me teach you the doctrine of God's providence, that God is going to care for his people, that God is the one who has prepared the meal as your duty to serve it, and he will see fit. He will keep, he will guard, he will make sure his church is fed. Without him going through all that, he simply brought that wonderful truth to a street level that spoke to my heart, encouraged me on my way, and in a real sense, it's because of him, of course God used him, but because of him, I'm here today. I'm here today. And that's what we get, like, we get that in this psalm. We get a street-level view of God's providence. That's what we get here. And, and, and without going through a great grand definition, he basically says this in more ways than one. He says, the Lord keeps you. He watches over you. And he protects you. That's what the psalmist does here. Through repetition, over and over again, you heard the word keep. The Lord will keep you. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will keep your soul over and over and over again. He's pressing home again this point that the Lord will keep you. The Lord will watch over you. The Lord will protect you. And he will do this forever. Forever. That's one of the hallmarks of this, of this text. Another one is you, we get two voices here. You notice in the first verses, one through two, you hear this pronoun where the psalmist says, where I look to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And then verses three through eight, we get another voice. Where instead of the my, there's a response to the psalmist question and confession. And he says, your keeper, Israel, God is Israel's keeper. So what do we have here? We get these two voices. Well, I'm going to preach it this way. It can either be the psalmist is wrestling within himself and he's answering his own question and he's meditating upon promises. Or it could be this. The second voice is almost a priestly figure blessing the pilgrim, encouraging the pilgrim, strengthening his, strengthening his heart in God as he's on his journey. And I think that's the aim of the text. And another reason why is because this seems to be a meditation on the Aaronic benediction. You know, you remember that. Back in Numbers chapter 6, where Israel has left Egypt. And they're being preached and expounded. The, the, the law of God is being preached and expounded to them. And they're right through in the wilderness. And they're on, a journey towards, they're on a journey towards the promised land. And Aaron stands up and he blesses them. And he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine upon you and give you peace. You see, these are pilgrims walking towards a promised land, and here's a priest who comes alongside and blesses them to encourage them. And Psalm 121 seems to be a meditation and an application of that great priestly prayer for the pilgrim on his or her journey. So first, there are four observations, as a matter of fact, four observations. Why can we trust God? Why can we trust God that he will keep us? 
that he will protect us and he will watch over us amidst whatever trial we may go through. How can we trust God? Well, the first, the pilgrim says, look at verses 1 and 2. He says, because the creator of all things, because he's a creator of all things, which means that he has authority over all things. Why can we trust God? Because God is the creator of all things. Therefore, he has authority over all things. He says, I will lift my eyes to the mountains from where does my help come from, verse 1. This is the closest we get to understanding what the psalmist is going through. It's actually pretty vague. You notice that? He doesn't tell us what the, what the problem is. All we know is he looks at these mountains, and the question arises, where does my help come from? From where does it come from? These great, big, marauding, menacing mountains, these mountains which no doubt would have been a glorious sight to him, but a terrifying prospect to him. He must travel through these mountains. And these mountains aren't like the mountains that we often walk through, but these are menacing mountains where there there are no lodges there. There is no protection. The danger of wild beasts, the danger of possible robbers. And he looks at it, he realizes that's an issue. There's a problem there. And don't you and I look at life that way, any tragedy, any danger, any threat that way? Isn't the logic clear when we see danger and we see something that is going to threaten our peace? Anxiety rises up inside of us. Fear halts us in our tracks. And we begin questioning, is the journey even worth it? Is it even worth it? Shall I keep going knowing that I can't protect myself? I can't guard myself. The psalmist is doing that. But the psalmist is not just wrestling with fear. It's not just anxiety that's rising up in him. But it's also, there's also hope there. The very question itself from where does my help come from is asking the question, I, I know I need help. There's hope there. There's tremendous hope there. And why is there hope there? Because these mountains, these mountains that he's traveling through, very likely the mountains in which Zion, the temple of God, resides. And he knows that God is there. That through these mountains, God is there. And if God is there, my destination must be sure. So he's wrestling with fear, anxiety, but he's also filled with hope. And that's why this question bubbles up from where does my help come from? Have you ever asked that question? In the darkness of the night, when it's just you, yourself, and I. You, yourself, and yourself, not me. I'm not there. (laughs) I promise you. (laughs) But when it's just you and yourself and your own fears, in more way than one, have you not asked, where am I going to get help? Oh, Lord, help me. And the psalmist goes into it and he says, my help comes from the Lord. But what's even more striking is that he confesses something. What roots, what, what, what ignites in him this hope? What ignites in him this faith? It's this creed. 
My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He looks to the first pages of his Bible. He goes to Genesis 1 and he hears the beginning phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything in between. That before there was time, before there was material stuff, before there were mountains to be concerned with, and threats and dangers to be alarmed at. He says there was God in perfect peace and in perfect control, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there before everything and anything ever existed. And if God is in control, and if he's the one who created all things, and he is sovereign over the very things in which he has created, that's where his confession Rest And his confession leads to confidence. And his faith puts his fears in perspective. You know, that's one of the reasons why we stand up and we say, we confess together our faith. It's not just because it's true, because it is, but it's powerful. It's to remind you and it's to remind me that we are not in control of our own lives. That we don't sit in the driver's seat. We're not the captains of our own ship, but there is one who is. And he's done great and marvelous things. So by repetition, we constantly confess our faith together. And it's for that, because you and I are like this pilgrim on our way to Jerusalem, on our way to Zion. Constantly being threatened with being ambushed by whatever trial may come. And we need to be reminded of our confession. We need to be reminded of our faith and we're at rest. And the psalmist says here, my confession, I confess that my help is going to come from the very one who created all things. But the question we must ask, I think, is appropriate. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Now, I'm not going to get scientific here. That's not my point. Nor is it to become an apologist, an apologist here to defend the faith, though we could. But why does God create the heavens and the earth? Was it just to display his glory, his power? For sure, definitely. But is there more? Did, was God creating the heavens and the earth out of loneliness? Was he doing it out of need because he's some egomaniac? And the only way for him to feel good about himself is that he creates creatures to praise and worship him? Is that why? Of, of course not. Of course not. But why? And I think Paul gives us a great answer. A great and profound answer, which is very applicable to our text here this morning. In Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, Paul, we can almost say he's answering our questionnaire. He says of Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the very firstborn of all creation. For, listen to this, by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and in invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There it is. Jesus Christ is the one who has created all things. But Paul goes further. All things are created through him and for him. Pause, stop, reflect. Paul just answered our question. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? The answer is for Jesus. 
But Paul says more. If the Bible stopped with that answer, that would be enough. It would be enough. But Paul and God is not satisfied. He gives us more. And speaking of Jesus again, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There it is again. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? For Jesus, that Jesus may be preeminent. Again, that would be enough. But Paul says more. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, the one who is preeminent, the one in whom this whole material world was created, through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Is creation simply the theater for God to show off his, his power and his majesty? Yes, but part of that power, part of that majesty, part of that glory, a real and key ingredient to that is that God was going to reconcile you through Jesus. So when the psalmist is looking at this heavens and the earth, he's not just seeing a great big cosmic power. He sees that behind this is a, it's, it's a very personal universe. There's a person behind it. And this person is Yahweh himself, the maker of heaven and earth. And here's the point. If God created all things, and his point is to redeem his people, then that's exactly what he's going to do for you. Because that's part of of the great big meaning of this life we live. And the psalmist reflects on that. So why can we trust God? Well, he's in control over all things. He created all things, therefore he is sovereign and in control over all things. Secondly, this is where the priestly voice comes in. In response to this pilgrim's Concern and confession, the priest comes in and gives us more. He expounds on and explains and, and brings home to bear this one confession that the psalmist makes. He parses out in further detail and further application what it means to trust in a God who makes heaven and earth. Then we can trust that our help comes from him. So the first thing the priest says is that God isn't indifferent or unavailable. He isn't indifferent or unavailable. Look at verses 3 through 4. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. Now, isn't that amazing? He, the, the first thing the priest comes along and says is, he will not allow your foot to stumble, to slip. Another way you can translate this as the priest is actually praying. You can actually translate this just at a very simple word. May he not allow your foot to slip. May he who keep you neither sleep nor slumber. You can translate it that way. So the priest is, is praying. 
He's praying here, either praying or affirming or, or, or both at the same time. But notice something. The first thing to parse out this great big doctrine of providence is to say, yes, Yahweh is so good. He is so in control. He is so concerned about your well-being and your safety and your, your holistic health. He says this. He won't even allow you to slip. Is it the sovereign's role to, to keep you from falling? If you trip and sprain an ankle, is it his job? That's the role of a servant. It's not the role of a king. Kings aren't concerned about whether you slip or fall, right? It's what we see here. This God who isn't indifferent to your little bumps and bruises that you come across. He's not just concerned about the big concerns you have in life. He's concerned about whatever you're going through right now. Are you afraid? Are you struggling with faith? Maybe your marriage? Maybe raising kids? Maybe as, as a young child, maybe you or a teenager, maybe you're wrestling with particular things. The Bible is not just for adults, by the way. The gospel is not just for adults. It's for you and your struggles, too. And God is concerned about that. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He, may he not allow even your foot to slip. God, is an, he's not indifferent to that. He cares deeply about those sprained ankles. He cares deeply about whether or not, or whether you're struggling with insecurities. He cares deeply about your loneliness and your sorrows and your fears. He cares deeply about it all. He's not just a God of the big things. He's a God of the small things, too. So behind the universe, behind this creator, is the heart of a servant. He's the heart, of, the heart of a servant. But he goes on to say, and he says, neither will he sleep or slumber. May he not sleep, may he not slumber. Now, there's a little jab here. This is a little jab. It's, 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 it's the psalmist way of encouraging you, but also knocking down ever so powerfully but, and, and pastorally our idols. Does that phrase ring a bell? Sleeping, a sleeping and slumbering God? A sleeping and slumbering God. Does, not, does that not ring a bell? Back in 1 Kings, whenever Elijah's on Mount Carmel and here are the the preachers and the priests of, of Baal weeping and yelling and slashing themselves and doing all types of crazy things. And what does Elijah say in mocking them? Is, is your God sleeping? Is he slumbering? Because as a matter of fact, that's what Baal was the God they were worshiping. That's what Baal was doing, possibly, according to their tradition. They, he had to be aroused. He had to be awakened. So they had to shout loud enough and scream loud enough so that, he, so that he would finally rub his eyes and say, oh, yeah, I forgot. I have people I need to take, take care of. And the psalmist is saying, no, no, no. We serve a God who's not like that. He neither sleeps. He doesn't slumber either. He's not like that individual after a Thanksgiving meal and 
he sits down, and, I'm, and after eating much of turkey, he falls back and he falls asleep. He's not like that. He's never weary or tired. But our little gods are. They're always unavail- unavailable when we need them, aren't they? Maybe, maybe your little god is prestige. Maybe it's looks. Maybe it's an I- ideal family situation in which you don't have, or maybe you have. Maybe it's your degree. Maybe it's popularity. Fill in the blank. If it, in our hours of deep concern, where are they? When we are helpless, where are they? They're sleepy little things, aren't they? Always sleep. Never there to actually help us. But the psalmist says, no, your little gods may be like that, but the true God, the one who created heaven and earth, is not like that. Trust him. But then he even goes further, and he gets even more particular. As we move on in our text, not only is God the creator of all things and has authority over all things, and he is an indifferent or unavailable. Thirdly, he is a round-the-clock protector. A round-the-clock protector. Look at verses 5 through 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Around the clock protector. I remember there, there's been a few times in my life I have, with all the passion in the world, told my friend, I said, you can call me whenever. I have an open phone policy. Call me whenever, and I'll be there for you just to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning to see that he called me four times and I didn't answer the phone (laughs) because I was asleep. I wasn't available at all. I wasn't around the clock encourager. I had to go to sleep and I missed it. Every attempt he made at reaching out to me was met with a voicemail. Every text message he sent was met with silence or as the phrase is said, being left on read if you use an iPhone. But the psalmist is saying, unlike me, God is always, always available. He's always there to protect. And this is, how does the psalmist do it? He says, he is a shade on your right hand, and then he says, the sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, some people take that as him knocking against superstition, a superstition of that day, but what I really think the psalmist is saying is that whether it be day or night, whether it be seen danger or unseen danger, God is there to protect you. The moon and the night and everything in between, the sun and the moon and everything in between, is a round-the-clock protector. He's a comprehensive protector. As you leave here, as you leave this place of worship and you walk and you and you go out there and you cross intersections and you encounter people without masks on. 
Remember, God is concerned about those things. And he's there to protect. And notice again what this priestly figure is doing. He's not just satisfied with leaving you with the great big doctrine of God as creator. But he wants to show you that God is sustainer. That God is He's in tune to the finer details of your life. He's in tune to those. So not only is God the creator of all things and has authority over all things, and not only is he not indifferent or unavailable, and not only is he a round-the-clock protector, lastly, he watches over your entire existence. And by entire existence, I don't just mean from the time you're born to the time you pass. Your existence exceeds and goes further than this life. So notice what the psalmist says at the end, verse 8, from this time forth and forever. God is not done protecting you once you pass this life. He keeps your very soul. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? That neither death nor life can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Whether it be angels or demons or whatever it be, nothing, not even death itself, can separate you from God's love. God is in the business of keeping his people. If he redeems you, he will keep you. Or as Jesus says in John 10, that no one can snatch him out of his grip or the Father's grip. Nothing. Not a single thing. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. What does it mean that the Lord will protect you and I, his people, from all evil? Does it mean that he's going to take you and I out of the furnace? Does it mean that he's going to make sure you never, ever have to endure suffering? Well, wouldn't that be nice? But I don't know how helpful it would actually be. Let me give you a quick example as we come to our closing. Back in the times of, let's just say the, the, the medieval times, 14th century, I don't know the exact date. There was a wealthy man, and he was walking through the marketplace. He was walking through the marketplace. And he hears this clanging. Clang, clang, clang. He's wondering, where is that coming from? He knows it's the sound of a blacksmith. So he looks and he sees, and oh, he sees, here's this big, brawny man, which you would typically, stereotypically think of as a blacksmith, right? Big, brawny, strong man going to town on this piece of metal, sticking his stick in his thing in the fire, and then going to town on it again. Bam, bam. And what was striking to this wealthy man walking about was that there was another man standing right next to this big brawny man. Again, dressed very finely. And every so often, that wealthy man, the man standing next to the blacksmith, would lean over, look, and then point. And then the blacksmith would go and just go to town. And he kept doing that. And that really interested struck interest in this wealthy man. So he walks up. He walks up to the man and he says, excuse me, who are you? He says, I, I, what exactly are you doing? He says, oh, I'm the blacksmith. 
and said, wait, he says, wait, wait, you're the blacksmith? I thought that guy was a blacksmith. He's the one obviously doing the work, right? He says, oh, no, no, sir, you misunderstand. That man is a fool. He doesn't know what he's doing. I'm the one, when I point, he hammers. When I say hit here, he hits there. He thinks he's just beating metal. I'm making treasure. I'm the one making the treasure. You see, that's what suffering's like in Satan's hands and in God's hands. Satan is going to town trying to undo all that you, all that, all, all that you are. Whatever it may be. But God is the one who is in control over every assault, even of the devil. So that when, whatever he hits, it's God making treasure. It's God conforming you to, in conforming you to the image of his son. That's what he's doing. That is how God protects you. He forms you and he shapes you and you can trust him with that. He guards you from all evil and that and the ultimate evil is to be separated from, his, from himself. He keeps you from all evil and he guards your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. How marvelous of a truth is that? How sweet is that to the saint? And it may be you. Fill in the blank. What are you wrestling with? What are you afraid of? Or you may not be a Christian, and you may be wrestling with the faith itself, still asking big questions, and you're wondering, is God good enough for me to bend my knee and give my allegiance to? The psalm answers that question, too. He is. He is. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth, and he is the God who, rede- who has redeemed his people, and he is the God who will keep his people from this time forth and forever. Amen?